All right, I'm, I'm starting off a series. I'll, uh, though the series is much longer than three weeks, I'll be back at it. But you're used to it now. Chris has got you used to series that can go for a year or two <laughs> and uh, that get interrupted by, you know, Christmas and Easter and all the rest of it. And so I'm, gonna go th I'm going to go three weeks on a series on spiritual warfare taken out of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18 about the spiritual armor. And, uh, and uh, so I'm going to be coming back to it next week and the week following, uh, but we won't be anywhere close to the end. And then I'll be gone in Cuba and Toronto uh, for a bit, and then when I get back, then maybe I get to do another couple or so, and probably we'll finish it up in January, okay? And so uh, you'll, you'll want to just have a good memory uh, for, for what I've said uh, half a year before, Okay. Ephesians chapter 6, that's where we're going to start. I'm going to read uh, this particular passage. I'm going to start with a verse before what you see on the screen, and it says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's as far as we're going today and next week and probably the week after. Then following that, we're going to go into put on, therefore, the whole armor of God, and we're going to talk about what that really means. And uh, it's very, very practical. But we're going to start by looking at the enemy. We have to know our enemy if we're going to fight intelligently. The reality of spiritual evil and the existence of demons hasn't been questioned in historic Christianity until recently. Today, many Christians don't see the relevance of speaking about the devil, but this topic is more relevant to the condition of the world than all talk about politics and international relationships and so on. It's a difference between dealing with a disease such as pneumonia, and dealing with its symptoms, you know, fevers and headaches and phlegm and coughing and such, you can take a variety of things to relieve your headache and congestion, and things will feel better for a little while, but after a while the symptoms return because you haven't dealt with the disease itself. This is the same mistake our culture has uh, made concerning evil. Because society doesn't believe in a personal devil or the evil dwelling within each of us, Vast energy and resources have been expended trying to cure what are only the effects or symptoms of evil, and they've done it in three ways, or they continue to do it in three ways. The first way that our society does it is through legislation. This is an inadequate solution, for in the end you can't make enough laws to curb all sinful and wicked behavior. Isn't that true? We just continue to make more and more and more and more and more laws trying to curb evil. Neither can you assign a policeman to every person on the planet. Further, laws are helpless to tame the inward man and his thoughts from which all evils spring forth, as we're going to see in future messages. The second way that they try to cure or curb evil is through education. Not just legislation, but education. Educators begin with the faulty pr premise that man is basically good at birth and then learns bad behavior through inadequate training and modeling. 
Their solution is to educate people in order to rescue the world from its destructive course. However, their education fails to take into account the reality of evil in the world, both inside and outside of us. So education just ends up making us more clever in our evil. It doesn't cure our evil. It makes us more clever in it. Our newspapers are filled with stories of well-heeled, well-trained politicians, educators, lawyers, judges, and business people who have, be, who have made shipwreck of their lives or they've even been imprisoned for uh, crimes they've committed. Clearly, the accumulation of knowledge and the ability to reason is, uh, didn't translate into success, into the basics of life. Would you agree with that? Clearly. Well, there's a third way that our culture has tried to cure and and curb evil and deal with it through improved environments, improving the environment. Billions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars have been spent around the world hoping to improve the living conditions in the hopes that it would stem evil. Now, I'm not against doing that. We do that. Uh, we do that. We give around here. We just had Thanksgiving food and clothing drive. And we have Tupandani and so on and so forth. But it doesn't curb evil. It's not the cure for evil. And the results of these efforts have been um, dismal and very disappointing. In contrast, countless of Christians throughout history and also today have lived in great need and dire circumstances, yet have been models of grace and kindness and patience, long-suffering and love. Isn't that true? So that argument doesn't work either. And that's why, despite man's best efforts, little has changed. We say things like, history repeats itself. Or, or we say, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Isn't it true? All we're doing is uh, identifying the problem. It's left many in the world bewildered. Years ago, Yu Thant, the former Secretary, uh, Secretary General of the UN, was speaking about the requirements of peace before 67 distinguished scholars and statesmen from 19 countries of the world uh, in front of an audience of 2,500 people. And, and he asked them, and I quote, What element is lacking so that with all our skill and all our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? He continued, what is it that inhibits us from going forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and to reap the harvest of human experience? Why is it that for all our professed ideals, our hopes, and our skills, peace on earth is still a distant objective seen only dimly through the storms and turmoils of our present difficulties? End of quote. There you have it. Talk about being relevant. This talk about evil, the talk about the devil, is it relevant? Oh, yes. It's very, very relevant. And Paul addressed that very question. He gave a very clear answer. He said, he said uh, the problem is we're facing a personal devil who's behind much of the trouble in the world today, and that is the teaching of, uh, of the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, as we'll see in the coming weeks. So let's go to the origin of evil. Where did it come from? Where did it start? 
Well, when God created the world, he created the angelic world as well. And you are the, it says in Nehemiah, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. There it is. There's the angelic host. The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And when God created all this, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very what? It was very, very good. Everything was perfect. This, meant, uh, this means that even the angelic world that God had created did not have evil angels or demons in it at the time. But by the time of Genesis 3, we find that Satan, having um, uh, embodied a serpent was tempting Eve to sin. Something between the events of Genesis 1 and uh, verse 31 and 3 verse 1, uh, somewhere in between there, there was a rebellion in the angelic world so that many angels turned against God, becoming evil. Scripture has much to say about it, but uh, just a, a small sampling. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, they sinned. And some angels rebelled against God, became hostile opponents of him. Their sin seems to have been pride, a refusal to accept their assigned place. Let's look at what the Old Testament has to say about it. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we have a, a very informed passage about this. It says, Son of man, Ezekiel was writing, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, and just hang on, you're saying, well, he's talking about the king of Tyre. Just hang on for a second. Thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection. Does that sound like the king of Tyre? Help me. He's a wicked king. Does that sound like the king of Tyre? No. The answer is no. Does it sound like the king of Tyre? Tyre? No. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. I doubt that he was very beautiful either. You were in Eden. There it is. There's, there's a big hint. He certainly wasn't in Eden with Adam and Eve. The garden of God, every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, uh, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold You were, uh, were your settings and your engravings. You were an anointed guardian cherub. That's an angel. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked in God's presence, where God lives in heaven. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God or heaven or God's dwelling place, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. God is speaking. The prophet says, it was the, and so the prophet is speaking here of the king of Tyre in verse 12. Then suddenly the language changes so that you can clearly tell he's now speaking of something completely different. And I, and I pointed it out as we, as we read it. Now, this wasn't uncommon for uh, Hebrew prophetic speech to pass from the description of human events to descriptions of heavenly events uh, that are parallel to them and that the earthly events pictured in a limited way. Many prophecies in the, in the Psalms, for example, uh, 
which appear to relate to King David alone, obviously go beyond David and point to Messiah. And that's how the New Testament writers understood them. They had double meanings. They had immediate fulfillment, and they had future or long-term fulfillment. Uh, and uh, that is true Hebraic prophetic literature. And um, prophecy had that element in it. So it is exactly the same in regard to this matter of evil. And, and what was Satan's sin? He says in verse 17, your heart was what? Proud. Your heart was proud. Now Isaiah tells us what Satan's pride led him to do. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star. There it is again. He's fallen from heaven or from the mountain of God. He's cast down. He's agreeing completely with what Ezekiel is saying. O day star, son of dawn. He's beautiful. He's brilliant. He's just a, 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 a wonder of creation by God. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and here it is, here's the pride. This is what he actually did because of his pride. I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. There it is. He became ambitious, determining to be equal to God in status and authority. And one of the greatest, most powerful of all God's angels... Uh, having become ambitious and dissatisfied with his position, desired to be God, like God himself, so he rebelled against God. He and his follower angels were cast out of heaven, and ever since his intent has been to persuade mankind to join him in a rebellion against God and ultimately to destroy the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. There you have the entire story, the entire biblical explanation condensed uh, for, the, for the sake of this message, and an explanation of what is taking place. But we're going to unpack it a little further. Let's talk about the world, the flesh, and devil, because people often say uh, things like, uh, we're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, yes, we are. Uh, to a degree, that's true to say that. But it's not completely accurate because Paul says there is really only one enemy, and it's the devil. That's, that's what he talks about. He doesn't talk about the world as the devil doesn't, or as our enemy, and neither does he talk about the flesh as our, our enemy, though he says there's problems with both, as you'll see. And we're going to talk about them for the remainder of this series. But here's why Paul says, there's one enemy. Satan uses the world, and he uses the flesh as channels through which to attack and destroy us. There we go. And that's an important distinction. In Ephesians chapter 2, for example, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. There it is, walking the course of this world. But look at this. He just continues following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. So 
you are following the course of this world, which is being led by the prince of power of the air, the spirit, spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He's working through this world, mind, or system, and philosophy to affect everyone. That's one of the ways that he does it. So he says, do not forget, Christian. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm restating it here. Do not forget, Christian, that once you too were following the course of this world under the grip and in the control of the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil. And we see the second channel through which he works as well, the flesh. It's found in the same passage in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He's just finished talking about the uh, uh, of the power of the air, prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. So we see the second channel there, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. People may say, we weren't aware of any control of the devil. Were you control uh, as you were born and as you've grown up and you've been following this, this natural principle in you that to do wrong, did, were you aware that you were following the devil? And you'll say, no, I wasn't aware uh, that I was doing that. Neither does the world. It's not aware of that. But it doesn't change the fact that that is what's happening. You did what you felt like doing, the natural desires of the body and mind. And when the Bible says flesh, of course, it's, it's used in a symbolic sense. It's not, it's not talking about your body, your physical body there. It's a picture. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's symbolic. It's talking about the urge to self-centeredness within us, the distortion of human nature, which makes us want to be our own God. That proud ego, that self, that uncrucified self, the seed of willful rebellion against authority. We were all born with this. Isn't that true? Is it true, sir? Yeah, we're all born like that. You don't have to teach your kids how to lie. These kids, they're going to spend the next 18 years or so trying to teach them not to lie. They already know how to do it. Did you know that? They're very good at it. They're experts. They were born experts, just like you and I. And... Um, no one had to teach us to lie or to be proud or to be bitter and rebellious and self-centered or to be disobedient. We do that very well all by ourselves. Now, look what James says about all that. He says in James chapter 3, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and what? Demonic. There it is. He's working through that broken nature, and we're not exploring that in, in, in the course of this particular message. Notice that word demonic. It is the devil attacking through the flesh, the human nature, distorting it and twisting it and changing it from what God intended it to be. And uh, we'll be talking much more uh, about this throughout the series. Now, let's talk about the second channel through which the uh, devil works, through which Satan works. Uh, to get to people. It's, he calls it the world. And back to verses 1 to 2, as we read already, 
You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. The world is that corporate expression of all the flesh-centered or self-centeredness of the individuals we just talked about a moment ago. That's that corporate expression. Since the flesh is every one of them acting devilish, sensual, earthly, it's the total combined expression of such beings that constitutes the world and determines the philosophy of this world. And I'm going to show you that there's a, there is a, there is a, sometimes it's a national mind that rises up and it agrees on a certain philosophy that is, that is anti-scriptural, anti-God. It's a worldly philosophy. It blinds and universally accepts false values, shallow concepts, insights, and deluded ideas of reality, what, the, what re reality really is about. And that's why sometimes you're reading your newspapers and you can't hardly stand it. It drives you nuts. You say, how can people, educated people, think like that? Does that ever happen to you? Yeah, there's a worldly philosophy. It's the corporate mindset that starts to come, and it overtakes education. It overtakes our judiciary. It overtakes our media. It overtakes our governments. And they all begin to think and say the same thing. It becomes a mindset. It's the corporate expression of the rebellious, self-centered, egotistical self. And it is that tremendous pressure of the majority upon the minority to conform, adjust, keep in step, and not to digress or to be different. And that's why the Bible says, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Aha, there it is. That is, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. While the world is totally unaware of it, nevertheless, it is under the control of satanic philosophy and ma manipulation and control. How do you explain how one of the most civilized, sophisticated, educated, and cultured societies in the world and history could unleash some of the worst horrors the world has ever seen methodically exterminating, uh, exterminating over 6 million Jews and leaving over 60 million dead in, its, in, in the wake of the war it created. How do you explain that? Education didn't work, did it? And how do you explain that World War I, which preceded it, which left 17 million dead and was often referred to as the war to end all wars, was followed up by these Nazi atrocities in World War II only 21 years later. It makes no sense whatsoever. Historians have said that it was because Germany was so humiliated by the subjugation of the Allies after her defeat in World War I. Well, this may explain the surface symptom. But, are, but how naive to suggest that this explains the root of the problem. Seriously? 
Surely this cannot explain the vitriol of a so-called civilized people who perpetrated some of the most gruesome and dreadful acts against humans ever recorded. Because you were humiliated? Because you were embarrassed? And that causes you to do that? Then we should all be doing that. Who hasn't been humiliated and embarrassed? How do you explain that a father of four would go out during the day and commit such ghastly deeds and return at night for a lovely supper with his lovely wife and children, all the while listening to Wagner? Or Wagner. How do you explain that? The scriptures alone have a convincing explanation for that evil. More specifically, the evil of the demonic world orchestrating and forming a national mind through bona fide spiritual brainwashing. Notice I didn't just say brainwashing, it's a spiritual brainwashing. It's demonically inspired. We see the same national mind in declared atheistic countries like the former Soviet Union and the present-day China where everyone was pressed to disown belief in any god. Those who resisted and those who resist today in China who resisted these beliefs like Christians were imprisoned like the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn and they were killed. The same happens in some Middle Eastern countries dominated by Islam today. Leaving Islam or converting to another religion will get you killed. That's a national mind, demonically inspired. It's the world. It's an enemy working through the world, forming a national mind or a worldly mind, satanically inspired. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred by hanging because he and other believers stood against the national German Nazi mind. All the signs indicate we're on the exact same path, and some believers in the West have already capitulated. And God warns, don't conform. He says, don't conform. These passages are more relevant today than they've ever been. The national mind and the enemies working through it. Those are the two main means by which Satan controls people. And why does it matter that we understand that we are not struggling against three distinct but equally uh, equal challenges like the word world, flesh, and devil? Why does it matter that we, we, we view it not as three distinct but equal? It's because then maybe Satan isn't as big a deal after all. But if he is truly using the flesh and the world through which channels through which he works, then he is a dominant and formidable foe and adversary that we must become aware of and deal with. And the scriptures tell us we can. We can have victory. He tells us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Do you think there's more might in the Lord? <laughs> Amen, there is. And then later, we're going to see, as we begin to unpack it, put on the whole armor of God. We don't have to capitulate 
to the enemy. We can be strong in the Lord like historic Christians from our past and that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. Amen? Amen. Are we going to be those kind of Christians? Amen. But we've got to know our adversary, who's the devil. Self-improvement techniques won't be enough to ward off such an adversary. So I'm going to wrap it up now with uh, just a few things here. The devil can't get the Christian back into the position of unconscious control, uh, which he once exercised over us, as he does in the rest of the world, but he can demoralize us, he can frighten us, he can make us miserable, he can defeat us, he makes us weak and barren and unfruitful in the things of God. In some cases, he's tempted uh, Christians to walk away from their faith. And Jesus warned that many would fall away from the faith. The devil is especially interested in defeating Christians. After all, the unredeemed worldling is no problem to him. He's quite content to let them go on rearranging the pieces of the puzzle without ever solving them. Just sh shuffle around a little bit. Try a few self-improvement techniques which don't really work. Usually improve one area and then something else springs up and doesn't work. So then you go over there and you try to fix that and then something else pops up and doesn't work. He's quite content to leave the worldling right there. But the presence of every Christian in this world bothers the devil greatly. Why? Because each Christian is a potential threat to the solidarity of the devil's kingdom, to his rule and the rest of mankind. You are a threat to him. You are a threat. You and I are a threat to the devil's kingdom that he is trying to establish here on earth. To the ruin he's trying to bring to the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. You are a threat to him. Because you, you don't just have an answer, you actually have the power within you to withstand and set others free as well by the power of the Spirit of God. And the arm, and you can stand strong in the power and the might of the Lord. You can put on your armor. The others can't. And so you are a target. God has equipped you and has given you the resources that you can stand. In the day of evil, you can stand. We'll unpack what that is in the weeks to come. So the devil cannot let this happen. So he attacks the Christian especially. We need to heed the words of our Lord when he said, Watch and pray. Have you ever wondered what that word watch meant? Every armor has watchmen on the walls. They have centurions. They have people who are sentries, I mean, who are watching for the enemy. And Jesus uses that kind of picture, and he says, watch Watch for the enemy. Know your enemy. And pray, lest you fall into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter said the same. He said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking, uh, uh, or around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Some Christians have already been trapped by the devil because they don't think the devil can touch them after they're saved. Oh. 
He's already got them. Scripture is clear. Jesus warned Peter just before his death that Satan was about to attack him. Peter didn't take it to heart, didn't take it seriously. He didn't watch and he didn't pray. And the result was that he fell and he fell big time. No wonder we find Peter sounding the warning to believers in that passage. If anybody understood that, he did. Amen? He had experienced it. Failure to be vigilant on our part gives the devil opportunities to do his work in us. Now, I want to I say something to you right here. You come to Southland, and you think, oh, this is great. You know, music's great, and people are changing, transforming. This is all wonderful, all wonderful, 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 wonderful. We're safe, sound, and secure. No, we're not. We got a big bullseye on us. I, you know what I tell pastors who are involved in church renewal? You want to start down the path to church renewal? I guarantee you he's going to paint a fresh bullseye on your back. He's coming after you because he wants to stop church renewal more than he wants to stop anything. If he renews this church and if he renews the churches that are joining in with church renewal and he, and he uh, can stop the movement towards church renewal in this country, he'll do it, but he won't do it by attacking somebody out there. He's going to do it by attacking the very heart of church renewal. Amen? Amen. It only makes sense. So if you joined with us, we didn't tell you this before, <laughs> but I'm telling you, you're lockstep with us now, and you signed up for trouble. Amen for trouble, right? What's so bad about that? But we can't be weak and anemic little Christians walking around, oh, I'm so beat up. We've got to learn to stand. Amen? I'm talking about the enemy. We've got to learn how to fight the enemy, who's the devil. So what are we watching for? He comes against us in different disguises. It's a roaring lion in some catastrophic event designed to knock us off our feet. He'll come and he'll, in some cases, he'll come after your family or he'll come after some event. It'll be catastrophic. And he's going to try to knock you and knock the breath out of you with what he's going to try to do. Or he'll come as an angel of light, alluring and appealing, offering something that seems right at the moment like a doctrine that would be nicer than the one I'm talking about right now. That once you get saved, everything is cool and you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise and sail on a smooth ship all the way to heaven. Is that appealing? Yes or no? Help me. Is it appealing? That's the way I want to go. But so far, in 60 years, I haven't been able to travel that ship. <laughs> the good ship prosperity, and neither have the vast majority of believers around the world who amounted to anything. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes through the world with its huge pressures to keep in line, to not be different with its ostracism of those who swim upstream. And most often through the channel of the flesh, the inner self with subtle, suggestive temptations. How does he do that? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. What gives the devil a foothold? A foot in the door of your life? Sin. That's simple. 
That's what does it. Non-Christian, if you're here, maybe you came here because of because the baby dedication and stuff, and you thought we were just going to talk about some nice, nice, sweet pie in the sky, a little bit of clouds and harps. What we're talking about is relevant. It's relevant to today. If you're not a believer, he already has you. That's what the scriptures teach. Your soul is already cast on his side. There's no neutrality in a war. There's no neutrality in this war. You're either, you either choose Jesus or you don't choose Jesus. John 10, 10 says, The thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus died to set you free from enslavement to the demonic forces that are causing you to that are that that are causing you to live the way you do. Oh yeah, you're broken inside, but he exacerbates that thing. And Jesus died on the cross not only to forgive your sins, he did that. But that wasn't the only thing he was doing on the cross. He died on the cross Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's talking about the demonic world, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over, over them by the cross. By dying on the cross, he made a way so that you could be forgiven that Jesus' substitutionary death, dying in your place somehow, would be good in God's standing and that you could be set free from the enslavement of the enemy who he's got the whole world in. That's why the world is in the mess it is. He died to set you free from that. But you must choose Jesus. You can't serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So if you're, a belie- if you're, if you're somebody who hasn't made a firm choice to follow Jesus, then I invite you to pray this prayer before I leave a charge and a word for believers. So we're going to pray that prayer right now because God loves you. <laughs> he knew you were going to come to this, to this baby dedication. He knew that. Not a, maybe hardly anybody else knew, but he knew, and he wanted you to have an opportunity be set free from the things that enslave you in your life. The way you react, the way you feel, the way the things you do, the things you don't do. All of those things. God came to forgive you for that and to set you free from that inability to quit acting like that because you're enslaved. So I'm gonna we're gonna pray a prayer right now. And if you would like Jesus to do that for you, then why don't you follow along in the prayer? I'm going to ask the entire congregation to just sitting there, just follow me in this prayer, and you follow along as they are doing. But if you, and if you mean it, you're praying that to God, and he will set you free. And you will choose Jesus today, okay? Dear God, I get it now. I've been enslaved by the enemy. Um, and I've rebelled against you. I've joined in. No, 
Start again. I've joined in rebelling against you, God. I've done that uh, uh, from my own will. But I now see that there's a sinister enemy behind it who's trying to drag me away from Jesus and this abundant life that he promised. So thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins and to set me free from the enemy. I choose you. I choose to follow you. Whatever the cost, please save me and make me one of your own. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I have a charge for the Christian. God says to you, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Amen? Amen? But there's something else he says. If you are entertaining sin in your life, if you're harboring sin, the devil already has a foothold in your life. That's what we just saw. He already has a foothold in your life from which he can attack you. He's going to try. He's not, he's not satisfied with just having a piece of you. He wants all of you. And he wants all those around you Maybe you've been living an anemic, lethargic Christian life. He is so thrilled that you're doing that. He's already got you. Because you see, that's how he gets your kids. That's how he gets your grandkids. That's how he gets your spouse. It's very easy. Don't let sin be the foot in the door by which he gets into your life and your family and destroys all that is dear and precious to you. Right now, I'd like all believers here, just bow your head for a moment. And let the Spirit of God examine your, your heart right now. Holy Spirit, reveal to us any sin that we're harboring. Maybe it's a lustful thought, desiring something that we shouldn't have. Maybe it's a sin we just refuse to get rid of. Don't kid yourself. This isn't Sunday school play. He's aiming to destroy you and your family and those around you through that. Confess it now to the Lord. Whatever he has brought to your mind, just say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that I was playing with eternal matters. And I know it's an affront to you. I've sinned against you and I confess that sin. And I choose to leave it at the cross where you paid for that sin, knowing that I would commit it in the future.
Say, Holy Spirit, fill me afresh and anew right now. Cleanse me with your cleansing blood. Make me right in your eyes. Renew a right spirit in me, Lord. And I choose to serve you from this day going forward, to stand and to be strong in you. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying? Amen and amen. God bless you.